Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. First, however, let us pray. Gracious God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Help us to hear your words of promise and hope, as well as your words of challenge, so that we can shape our lives around you and what you desire for the world. Amen. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come to lick at his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm has been fixed, so that who might want to pass from here cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not come down to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes from them to the dead, they will be able to repent. He said to them, If you do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our conversations throughout this series, this Do I Really Have to Believe That series, They've gotten increasingly complicated, haven't they? Do you have to believe in scripture as the literal and inerrant word of God? No. You can, but you don't have to, and I don't particularly recommend it. Do you have to believe in predestination? No. No, but that's a no with an asterisk of sorts, because whether you believe in predestination or not... What's true is that you have always been predestined to be loved by God. Do you have to believe in forgiveness? It's really complicated. That's about as definitive as I got last week because forgiveness is so incredibly layered. And a life of faith can handle complexity. So in terms of what you have to believe, so far we're at no, no, and it's complicated. So this week, do you have to believe in hell? No, but also yes. Let me explain. The vast, vast majority of theological debate about hell isn't particularly well-rounded. Almost all of the commentary you can find anywhere about hell is concerned with just one thing, 
avoiding it. It may be that some of you have a story similar to this one. Back when I was in college, my freshman year, I was randomly assigned a roommate. Her name was Jaina, and we got along well enough. She played basketball, I played field hockey. She was messy, but willing to share her snacks. Jaina was also very evangelical. So one afternoon, as we were studying, she pulled her chair up alongside my desk with remarkable urgency, and she said, are you certain of your salvation, Jenny? Now, suffice it to say, I was not particularly well prepared for that moment. I went to Catholic school from kindergarten through 12th grade, but the question had never really come up. Yes? I said, are you sure? Are you certain and sure? I think so. Jenny, I want to be sure, she said. I really need to be sure for you. Would it be okay if we prayed together? Could we pray the prayer that would make sure? Okay. And so Jaina prayed with gratitude that in accepting Jesus, I had saved myself from the depths and flames of hell. Now, I was not entirely sure what we had just accomplished, but she looked immensely relieved and she said, I'm so glad I don't have to be afraid for you anymore. And we both went back to our books. The problem is that too many Christians capitalize on that sort of fear. And in fact, they even encourage it. And too many churches use theology in general, and hell in particular, as a scare tactic. Because fear is a remarkably effective tool for controlling what someone thinks or how they live their life. And it is not always as harmless as it was with my roommate, too often, the threat of hell is what is hung over someone's head while someone else tries to convince them that how they vote, or who they love, or what they believe, or anything else about them is wrong. But fear... Friends, fear has no place in the tool belt of the faithful. Because one of the things Jesus said more than anything else during his life was do not be afraid. He came to alleviate our fear, not manipulate it. Jesus never once scared anyone into following him. It was never about the fear he could instill. It was always and only about the life he could offer. So what are we to make of those scriptural references to hell, especially the ones that come out of Jesus' own mouth? It's a fair question. The word hell shows up 12 times in the New Testament. 11 of those 12 times are from Jesus. And when Jesus talks about hell, he almost always uses the Greek word Gehenna. Now, if you chase the word Gehenna back to its most original and basic meaning, 
you learned that Gehenna was the name of a place, a specific and tangible and historically verified place. It was a valley, a deep valley on the southwest side of Jerusalem. And that valley, in the centuries before Jesus, was used as a place for ritual sacrifice. The city officials found that displeasing. And so they decided to repurpose that valley into the only thing that could both fill up that kind of space and keep people far away from it at the same time. The Valley of Gehenna, it became the local garbage dump. A valley carved into earth by time where trash was collected and fires were kept burning around the clock in order to keep the amount of trash under control. A place where wild animals would fight over scraps of food found at the edges, snapping and gnashing their teeth at one another. A place where no one of any means ever wanted to be. And so by default, became the place where the outcast and the lowly, the last and the least, found themselves stranded when their every other option had been exhausted. That is Gehenna. Now the other word Jesus uses is Hades. He only uses it a couple of times, but one of those times is in our reading for today, the parable that Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus. You heard Sam read it. There is an incredibly rich man, and every day he wears purple, and every day he feasts extravagantly. But here's what else happens every day. A poor man named Lazarus, who is starving to death and covered in sores, comes and sits outside the rich man's gates. Now that's all we hear about their lives. In death, angels come for Lazarus, who is taken to heaven where he is greeted by none other than Abraham. The rich man is taken to Hades, where he suffers mightily. In the midst of his distress, he looks up and he sees Abraham and Lazarus far away but within his sight. So he calls out, Abraham, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to fetch me some cool water, won't you? Because maybe you haven't noticed, but I'm burning up over here. And Abraham, Abraham says, oh no, child. No, because do you remember how you lived? You had all sorts of good things, and Lazarus had absolutely nothing. So now he is the one in comfort, and you are the one in agony. I know, it's a hard story. But look at it again with me. The first time the rich man sees Lazarus in any capacity at all is after they've both died, when all of a sudden the rich man, who previously wanted for nothing, needs something. 
Prior to that, their paths actually crossed every single day of their lives. The text is clear about that. And every single day of their lives, the rich man looked right past Lazarus. You see, the rich man's sin wasn't the fact that he was rich. There is no direct critique of his wealth in this text. And his sin wasn't that he was cruel to Lazarus. It wasn't that he looked him in the eyes and said, No, I will absolutely not share what I have with you. The rich man's sin is that he never even saw Lazarus at all. Do you remember what Elie Wiesel once said? After surviving the Holocaust, this was his observation. He said, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. And the opposite of beauty is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death. It's indifference. Now I know, I know that Jesus specifically mentions Hades, which in Greek mythology is often associated with death and the underworld. But those who heard Jesus and those who helped assemble the Gospels that tell us about Jesus, they would have also known this. Hades, the mythological place, is named for Hades, the mythological god, whose name means the unseen one. The rich man who never once saw Lazarus in life now finds himself trapped in the land of the unseen. The Gospels are too carefully constructed for that to be linguistic coincidence. And what the Gospels taken as a whole tell us, and what Luke especially taken as a whole tells us from beginning to end, is that Jesus will usher in a great reversal. When the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. When the hungry shall be filled, and the stuffed sent away. When the poor shall receive and rich hands remain empty. When the invisible will be seen and the indifferent learn what it is to be ignored. When those who have been cast aside are welcome home. And those who have done the casting out experience the flames of the city dump. When those who know what a living hell feels like are rescued and those who have perpetuated broken systems are held accountable. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus, it has absolutely nothing to do with anyone's address in the afterlife. It is but one more serious and sincere affirmation that Jesus is making and will continue to make good his promise that there is a place for all of God's children. You see, it's, it's really not a story about hell, 
But it is a story about death, the kind of death that leads to life. Like when Jesus says elsewhere that you will have to lose your life in order to find it. Sometimes we have to give up life the way we know it in order to live life the way God intends. Because the kingdom of God will absolutely always find a way. So back to the question of hell and whether you really need to believe in it. Let me be perfectly clear. If I understand the text, there is nothing in Scripture. There is nothing anywhere in Scripture, not even the passages that specifically mention Hades and hell. Nothing in Scripture ever suggests that Jesus will abandon us for eternity. But there is plenty in Scripture, all throughout Scripture, that suggests that neither will Jesus ever abandon us to our own ignorance, or our own stubbornness, or our own selfishness, or our own indifference. He loves us too much for that. And he simply will not rest until full restoration has come into everyone's life, including ours. Do you have to believe in hell? Here's what I can tell you. If hell is a place where we are tormented forever, or where flames consume us, or where we are kept apart from God for all eternity, well, I don't believe in that kind of hell at all. And I'd even go so far as to say that that kind of hell is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is presented to us in scripture. But if hell is a living condition in which children go to bed hungry and black and brown folks wake each day wary and healthcare is a luxury, not a right and loneliness is pervasive and grief is unbearable, well, that kind of hell is not only worth believing in, it is worth taking very seriously in fact, if we are to call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, we will stand up at the gates of that hell, and we will prevail upon them until the day they fall forever. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.